Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. My name is Jeanette Abney, and I want to thank you for joining me here at Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio. I want to first thank my Heavenly Father for blessing me this morning by waking me up and giving me the activities of my limbs. I don't like the fact that I have a doctor's appointment today, but that's okay. So today we're going to be talking about a very interesting subject. Now, the month of February is Black History Month. And in honor of such, today's show, we will address the challenges that people of color deal with as it relates to mental health. Now, we started talking about, well, what does that have to do with Black History Month? And a lot of times, we don't pay attention to a lot of things. When I was getting ready for the show, I wanted to know, who was the first African-American psychologist? And what I found out was there was an individual by the name of Francis Summer, and he has a Ph.D., and he is referred to the father of black psychology because he was the first African-American to receive a Ph.D. degree in psychology. Now, Summers was born in Arkansas in 1895. Now, when we start talking about African-Americans and people of color and, you know, and that can have a lot to do with other different races. But I found this to be interesting, especially when we start talking about mental health for a lot of reasons. Now, I'm going to have you guys join us as I am going to be interviewing and introducing to you guys Dr. Sheila D. Williams. Dr. Sheila D. Williams is an expert in her field as she possesses a master's degree in mental health counseling and a Ph.D. in leadership and education. Now, let me log on because there's a whole lot more we can say, but I want to get started with the show. Good afternoon, Dr. Sheila. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I am well. I was looking at you as you, well, not looking at you, but looking at your number on here. I said, you know what, she's so prompt, even though we got different time zones. But I want to thank you, and it is an honor to interview you. So if I am stumbling with words, I'm going to say today, I feel like I'm fasting, because we start talking about not only mental health with people of color, are also our regular mental health, physical health, everything. I got to get this colonoscopy done. I done drunk the stuff, so I hope I don't have to go to the bathroom. One of my therapists said, "Take the microphone in the bathroom." Which <laughs> I don't know why they didn't give me a morning appointment. They gave me a late afternoon appointment. I'm gonna starve to death. So the oh, girl. Wow. Jesus, I, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. So, But the thing is, we need to yes. take care of ourselves. Now, yes. I find it interesting in regard to some of the things that you do, and especially when we start talking about the field of mental health, and with you being an expert, and indicates also that you also provide trainings and education and you're in executive management with over 25 years of experience in both mental health and in the field of education. Now, and you are also an author of a critically acclaimed memoir, My Mother's Keeper. And yes. it indicates that you had was dealing with mental illness in your family and you chose to break the silence as it related to the mental illness and the family dysfunction. And, you know, that is one of the things that I find to be very interesting when it comes to mental health and people of color because sometimes we normalize it. So, again, it's an honor. Thank you. I appreciate you. And let's talk about this subject. Now, Dr. Sheila, do you want me to call you Dr. Sheila or do you want me to call you Dr. Williams? No, no, it's fine. Either way, Dr. Sheila is fine. A lot of okay. people call me Dr. Sheila, so I'm used to it. <laughs> okay. Dr. Sheila, now when you indicate that your book, tell the listeners first of all about your book and how can they find your book. Okay, well, thank you, first of all, for having me here on the show. I'm excited to be here. Uh, as you mentioned, yes, I have a very long career uh, in the field, but as well, um, there's this personal, very intricate uh, piece of my life um, that is actually all of my life that has been dealing with, um, like you said, mental illness uh, in my family. So as many African Americans uh, experience, there is a relative. Uh, that we may have that, you know, may not be 
quote unquote have normal behaviors. Um, you mm-hmm. know, there's some something that's kinda a little bit like not normal, a little off. Mm-hmm. And uh so, so that person was my mother. And uh for a very long time we had no idea what it was. Uh, you know, we, we knew that there were symptoms, we knew that there was something that was not right with her, but we didn't know anybody that had a quote unquote mental illness. We didn't know of any psychologists, we didn't know any therapists. So mm-hmm. the whole field, the whole area, the entire subject of counseling, mental health, mental illness never came up. We never talked about it. We didn't even know what it was. So when my mother would explain to the physicians, because she constantly went to the doctor, but she would explain to the doctors what was wrong with her, she could she could not uh, communicate that she had emotional or psychological or perhaps any mental um, ailments. It, she never could communicate that, and neither could we because we didn't even know it existed. So mm-hmm. her condition kind of sounded like it was a physical ailment because she would say, I'm tired, I don't feel well, um, I lack energy. So saying those type of things, you would think, okay, maybe she needs some B12 or maybe she, you know, is um, overexerting herself and maybe she needs rest, maybe she needs muscle relaxers. And so these were the things that the physicians were looking for, um, and that's what she got prescribed. Things uh-huh. um, that, you know, address those type of things. But it was never um, indicated that she perhaps had a mental condition. It wasn't until I was about 24, 25 years old as a grown woman um, that she was finally diagnosed with, um, you know, clinical depression. So and you, that and is you know what, Dr. Sheila, I, I, yes. I find that to be interesting because I don't know exactly where you were raised. What, where are you from? Because I didn't see that on your bio. Yes, I'm originally from Florida, so I was born and raised in Florida. So all of this occurred uh, in Florida, but as I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, it's suspected that perhaps something happened to her and she had a traumatic experience as a child that mm-hmm. was, uh, you, know, not, you know, not addressed. And as we know, when we experience trauma and it is not, um, you know, appropriately addressed, treated through therapy and or medication, then that trauma can, you know, lie dormant and, uh, you know, reappear later. Um, Or, you know, perhaps, you know, as I spoke about in the book, my my mother was very quiet. Um, Perhaps she was depressed for a very long time, long before she got married and had children. So me as um, the youngest of the three children, uh, when, you know, when I came along, you know, she was well into a depressive state because it was almost like an empty nest type thing going on. And um, so I experienced, um, you know, much more of my mother's depression than my older siblings did because they were already, you know, they were so much older than me. They were already grown grown and gone. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just decided to, to use my, my life and my experience. Finally, you know, here I was in my early 40s. I finally, you know, listened to God's, God's voice and, and so many people who had a little bit of an idea what was going on, they were telling me, you need to tell the story, you need to tell the story, but little did they know I had already gotten that message from God that I needed to uh, live truly in my purpose and, um, you know, talk about this and be very transparent about it because, you know, it is such a taboo topic in the African-American community and, and it's not just my story, it's my mother's story, my family's story, and it's the story of so many people. So, with me being transparent about it, I had to be, uh, you know, cautious and careful that my mother was okay with it. And she wasn't okay with it until, unfortunately, she was, you know, she was uh, stage, you know, stage four, last stage, um, you know, in her illness as far as multiple sclerosis. And she was uh, on hospice. And she finally said to me, you want to tell my story, go ahead and tell it. And at that point, she felt she felt safe because she knew that she wasn't going to be here much longer. Wow. So she, uh, she passed, and, yeah, she passed, and then two two years later, I went ahead and I published the book. So wow. I, I tell this, you know, I tell the story of my life and my mother's life and the family dysfunction because it's it's not about me. I feel that the experiences that I had are to be a voice for so many people that feel that they don't have a voice or they're afraid or ashamed to talk about what's going on with them. But I want them to know 
the story is not a sad story. The story is actually a story of um, triumph and, uh, you know, success because I was able to go through all of that, um, obviously with some trauma that I experienced, to go through all of that, having a mother with an undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, untreated mental illness, I could still come out of that, me and my siblings could still come out of that, you know, unharmed. Um, but obviously from that, having to find ways in which you are able to cope with the things that you dealt with in a very healthy way. And that's why I, I talk about it. That's why I'm so transparent and candid about it because I want to use my story, my life, and my experience personally and professionally to help other people. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I commend you for that. And you bring up a lot of different things because for individuals that know me personally, they know that Precious Predicaments and J.A. Precious basically originated from my mother, Jean Brooks. And she succumbed to cancer. As a matter of fact, she I'm about to approach the anniversary of her passing because she went terminally, terminally ill on February the 8th, and she passed on February the 17th. So I'm about to celebrate the anniversary mm-hmm. of her passing. And she um, right. died of breast cancer. And it was interesting because as you were speaking, I was thinking about her, my grandmother. We used to think they were hypochondriacs. We thought that they was playing sick. And my mother was depressed, mm-hmm. but what she did was she self-medicated with alcohol. And she was a functioning alcoholic. Mm-hmm was depressed, and I didn't know what depression was. I didn't know, and I, even as a licensed marriage and family therapist, when I went into the field, it wasn't a field that I wanted to go into. I wanted to be an attorney and then retire as a judge. So dealing with mental health, I didn't know nothing about it. So when we would have family members that were suffering from depression, anxiety, and growing up in Compton, California, we had no idea what that was. So especially even with schizophrenia. So individuals would either go to church or go to the alcohol at the liquor store because they had no, there was no resources. So when we start talking about right. mental health, we have some callers on the line that's waiting. I'm about to log you on in a minute. I want to say, when we start talking about communication, it's really big, but mental health includes our emotional, our psychological, and social well-being, and it affects how we think, we feel, and we act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make choices. Mental health is important yes. at every stage of life, from childhood to adolescence, and through adulthood, and even with seniors. Because when you think about how huge that is, and the fact that we've been, as a people of color, ignored for so long, it's sad. Mm-hmm. Because even as mm-hmm. kids, individuals were being labeled as with ADHD, and they weren't, and you know, and coping skills. So now we're having to learn how to become transparent, how to break the barriers in the stigma in communities and health individuals. Mm-hmm. So let me log on yes. some of the callers that are waiting patiently. I appreciate that. Good afternoon. My name is Jeanette Abney. Welcome to Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio, number ending in 55. How are you doing? Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Do you have any questions for Dr. Sheila Williams or myself? Or is there anything you yes, want to add uh, to this topic doc- when we talk about mental health and people of color? Yes, uh, for Dr. Williams. Dr. Williams, what do you see any positive forward movement on uh, mental health and people addressing it in our community? That's the first thing. The second thing is talk about uh, how professionals like yourself can coexist in moving our community forward in this mental health space with the uh, preachers and the religious community. Okay, thank you. Um, well, the first question, I would definitely say that uh, there has been progress. Um, when I say that there has been progress, there's progress now that we are actually having a conversation. Uh, because when we think about it 20, 25, 30 years ago, there was no conversation. Um, mm-hmm. it, not even 25 years ago, I would say 10 years ago. The conversation in the minority, particularly in the African-American communities, was slim to none. Um, So now we are at least having conversations about the fact that mental health and mental illness actually does exist. Um, So that's step number one, to admit that there is, uh, you know, a problem. Uh, Step number two would be now let's take advantage of the fact that there are resources available for us in our community. Uh, Because although there are some communities that have way more 
resources. We do know that. We're aware of that. There are limited resources in some communities, but there are always resources. There are very few areas that there is absolutely nothing. So when I say that there may be limited resources, there may only be a community uh, mental health agency for that particular entire county, but at least there is one community mental health center. Um, perhaps you have to go through your insurance carrier to locate a psychologist, and maybe they're not in your city, but they're in the city next next to it. Maybe they're not in your particular county, but they're in the county over. So there are resources available. It may not just be in a 10- or 15-mile radius of where you are located, but there are resources. So I will say definitely there is progress, but we still have a long way to go. In reference to your second question, yes, the conversation like we're having today needs to be an ongoing conversation that we have in all areas. So not just uh, through radio and media. Obviously, that's number one because we are able to reach a larger market. So through radio and TV and blog and social media, I feel that we all should be posting and sharing uh, stories and resources on a daily basis. The second part of that is we have black churches, and black churches have a huge opportunity to uh, be a resource and education to their members. But when we have black churches that refuse to admit and, and um, acknowledge that there is a problem in the community, then we fail to move forward. So if we care about our, our members, and we should as religious organizations, in my opinion, we should hold health fairs. And those health fairs need to include mental health services and mental health education and awareness. And you know, Dr. Sheila, I want to add to that. Um, I'm in California, and there's a guy, and his name is Kahalifa King, and he. I attended a training with him, and it was in, it was about mental health first aid. And in Orange County, there was also an RFP for the state of California, where they were basically training individuals to train people in leadership in regards to whether it was, you know, um, non-denomination, Christian, Baptist, um, Catholic churches, so that they can bring a sense of awareness. And the certification lasts for three years. So there are individuals that are going into churches and training the congregation and especially people of leadership to be able to identify symptoms so that they know what they're looking at too. Because at first they had no idea what was going on. So that is something else also that I have seen and attended trainings and obtained the certification myself to be able to um, help individuals in that area. Now, we have some other callers, so that was definitely two great questions. So let me log on the other person because he's been, or they've been waiting patiently. Hi, this is Jeanette mm-hmm. Abney. Welcome to Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio, number ending in 49. May I help you? Uh, yes, my name is Brenda Jackson, and I was just invited to uh, listen in today to see what you all were doing. But my issue is not with necessarily mental health. It's with uh, bullying in schools because I'm located in Fort Lauderdale, and I'm sure you've heard about the killing at several schools around here, and bullying is the main problem. But when it was put to our president, through a child, he ignored it. But by me teaching for 25 years, I know that child was on point. So what I've been trying to do is do a learning tool so adults and children can learn mentally that bullying causes more problems than they may be aware of. And, you know, I just that is basically what I'm doing. I appreciate that. And if you can give me more information, and I would love to also have you as a guest to be able to share that information because bullying does also correlate with mental health because individuals that are being bullied, they can um, demonstrate symptoms of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and all of those are mental health issues also. So it all goes hand in hand. And also the trauma that individuals experience when you're talking about that. And sometimes my mother used to say behind every bad kid was a bad parent. So sometimes a lot of times the school, is they, they become intimidated by the parents and they don't know how to address the issue. So we have to learn how to present the information, engage in effective communication to be able to let individuals know you need to stop that. And even as a therapist myself, 
When I work with kids that are bullies, I try to get to the underlying root of their problem, too, so that they can see how they are impacting and affecting other people because that has to stop because you even have children committing suicide. And it's not only in the schools. It's also workplace bullying. Look at what's going on in our politics. That was a whole other form of bullying. So we have a lot of that going on. Let me log on the next caller. As you bring them on, I just wanted to say that with the bullying, we also have to keep in mind, as you stated, the person you have two two things going on: the person who's bullying and mm-hmm. the, the child or the adult that's being bullied. So mm-hmm. you have to talk, think about what is underlining as to why that bully is is you know doing mm-hmm. what they're doing. So you know, so you have two different. You actually have two different victims. You know, even though you have, you you know, what what causes a person to want to do that to another person? Mm-hmm. Well, my problem, excuse me, my problem was, you know, in the classroom, the children would say little things to each other, but I would correct it. But the child that they said it to would go home, and their parents would blow it out of proportion, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, and not only. We lost the caller. Okay, caller, there's two callers that calls that dropped. You can call back. But, you know, and just like Dr. Sheila was saying, we got two individuals here. We got the person that's doing the bullying, and we got the person that's on the receiving end. I used to say, and I used to say it on the air, that I was a bully who bullied bullies because I could not stand when I would see other individuals getting taken advantage of, but then I knew how to go about it. But you do have to be careful also when you're approaching that subject because sometimes when individuals are hurt or wounded and they become sensitive, they it can definitely get out of control. But we do need to have more communication about this, breaking that stigma, barriers, and being transpa- more transparent when we're talking about that. Okay, someone else just call back in. Let me log them on. Okay. Hi, this is Jeanette. Welcome to Precious Predicaments, Blog Talk Radio, number ended in 49. Is there, do you have a question or something you want to add to this show as we talk about mental health and people of color? Oh, my phone got cut off. I'm sorry about that. But uh, oh, no. what I was mainly mainly saying is that, you know, sometimes the parents blow bullying out of proportion. It'd be simple things that kids, that can be handled in the classroom. But once it's handled, the children go back to playing together and, enjoying themselves, but then the children mention it to their parents, and the parents blow it out of proportion. Well, one of the things that I found, even as a therapist and working also, I used to work for with the, the Oceanside Unified School District, is sometimes you have parents that were also bullied. And so sometimes we may not, we don't want to minimize it, and we don't want to blow it out of proportion because kids are and can be resilient, but there are some children that have committed suicide because they were bullied. So, you know, we have to look at it on a case-by-case basis and how, and even talking to the parent and find out what their concerns are because sometimes that's like a vicious cycle. Dr. Sheila, anything else you want to say in regards to that? No, I wanted to thank her for uh, calling in and, you know, just be very vigilant um, from children to adults to our seniors whenever mm-hmm. there are some warning signs that there is something that may be going on. We just have to be very vigilant and, you know, not to minimize because we never know mm-hmm. what that person is going through and what they're capable or what they may have even thought about doing. Um, so we just have to make sure that we, we are very vigilant and, and caring not only for ourselves, but, you know, caring for those that are around us as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially, like I said, in the schools, because the school setting can be real interesting when you're talking about these subjects, because it could be that one incident and then something else comes up and then we're connecting them all together and then being a teacher. And I commend teachers because it takes a lot of patience to not only work with the students, but work with the parents, work with the administrators. It's a lot. It is definitely a lot. Now, a woman did someone want to say something? I thought I heard the gentleman on the no. air. 
Okay. Um, uh-huh. Dr. Sheila, I want to talk about some things when we start talking about going back to mental health and people of color. I'm looking at something, mm-hmm. and it's coming from um, on, in regards to behavior health, and they talk about five factors that affect mental health in African-American communities. Now, some of the things that they talk about is, one, racism meaning Mental Health America points that out. And despite the progress that we're making over the years, racism continues to have an impact on the mental health of black African Americans and negative stereotypes and attitudes of rejections have decreased but continue to occur with measures, adverse consequences, and historical contemporary instances of negative treatment have led to mistrust of authorities, many of whom are not seen as having the best interest of the African-Americans in mind. And one of the things, and I'm reading this word for word, and it is indicated on aroundlodge.com, or .org is where I'm getting this information. But I know even as an African-American therapist, I receive a lot of clients that will say, I want a black therapist, or one of my therapists that works in my office, she's Caucasian. And, you know, I don't, I have really very thick skin, so I don't take it personal, but I'm finding also that some individuals may not even want help from an African-American, even if they are African-American. Dr. Sheila, have you ever right. experienced that? Because we're in this field and we're in the trenches doing the work. Have you ever received any form of, we talk about the racism and, and just the, the negativity? What has been your experience with that? Oh, yes. Um, you know, and I, and I can say that I've had, um, obviously as an African-American woman, I have experienced, uh, you know, racism. Um, unfortunately, you know, sometimes it's very subtle and sometimes mm-hmm. it can be very, you know, very obvious and very egregious. So um, I will say there have been there have been few times that I've experienced it where it's been very egregious. So I thank God for that. Um, mm-hmm. But the I, I feel that the obvi- the ones that are not so obvious, the ones that are subtle, um, to me, uh, sometimes they have much more of a lasting impact. So I think mm-hmm. I think what happens is um, I won't say that people are not aware. I will say that they've been conditioned to feel that it's okay to say and behave in a certain way that society um, perhaps has, you know, allowed this norm to kind of continue. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, the thing that I've experienced is a lot of times, um, you know, if you hear my name, Dr. Williams, you have no idea what, you know, what race I am. Um, mm-hmm. So what happens is then when you show, you know, when, when you show up or I show up, and the 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 resume that you read or the bio that you read, um, you know, is not conducive to any race. But then when mm-hmm. I come up and you realize that I am African American, sometimes I can see the the look on the face as, ooh, okay. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. So when it comes to to coaching and 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 being a therapist, I have never really um, experienced that, um, and particularly with working with, with children, I find that they are much more innocent um, mm-hmm. at times than, than adults are. They, they just want help. Um, children, um, typically for the most part that I've experienced, um, they don't, um, you know, have that, you know, discrimination and racism. But then their parents or their parents and grandparents who um, did not grow up in the same era that they, that they did. So, you know, I find that children are a little bit more accepting. And um, they don't place, um, you know, a lot of emphasis on the whole race thing. But um, what do you got? not to say this is true when it comes to their, their parents and their grandparents. So I will say I've been what? fortunate to not have experienced so, so much of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say that my experience is to find the therapist that you feel most comfortable with. So I can't Correct. necessarily say that, you know, an African-American woman who is in need of therapy and or treatment or counseling needs to have an African-American therapist. I'm not going to say that because I don't know what your experiences are, but I will say that whatever you need, if you need counseling, therapy, treatment, help, get it from whomever you need. And that's very important. I'm going to have the gentleman speak because the racism can go in different ways. Okay, sir, what was you going to say? What about uh, men? Because I know African-American men, uh, historically, uh, you know, don't go to therapists and don't go mm-hmm. to counseling. 
Well, give me some thoughts mm-hmm. on uh, how we could break that down. Uh, both, I'd like to hear both of y'all's uh, experience and oh. also observation on that one. Got you. And, you know, that's an interesting point because especially when you talk about African-American men and even dealing with an African-American woman as a therapist, sometimes I think it depends on the personality of that person because I find it easier to connect with African-American men than I do with African-American women in therapy because a lot of my experiences mm-hmm. being there are like, well, who do you think you are? How are you going to tell me what to do? Or, or they want oh, okay. someone that they feel or believe they, you know, because they challenge individuals. But with a man, a man is looking at how he was raised with his mother, and they just want to make sure that they're not being um, singled out, not being belittled, not challenging their ego. So you have to kind of do this dance. I One of the things that I do is I try to get people to think. If I get you to think, then I can motivate you to change, no matter what the behavior is. And in addition to mental health, I also do the 52-week batteries intervention program. So I work with individuals that have been deemed by the court as perpetrators of domestic violence. And I've been very successful with that. And part of that, I believe, is because of my personality. So, Dr. Sheila, what would you say in regards to that, in regards to working with men or men of color? Oh, yes, most certainly. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say a couple of different points. The first point um, I wanted to to bring out is I've been on both sides when you talk about therapy. So with a master's degree in mental health, uh, you know, working in the counseling you know counseling fields and mental health field for so long, you know, I've served as, as a therapist, as a counselor, as a crisis intervention specialist, you know, for many many years. And then on the other side of that, I'm such an advocate of mental health. Um, awareness and treatment because I've been a patient. (laughs) I've been a client. Um, So I am very open about the fact that I have had therapy. I've had treatment. Thank God I've never had to have medication per se, but I am constantly aware of my own mental health. And when I need to see my psychiatrist or psychologist, I make sure that I am there. So for me, I have had both. I have had uh, an African-American woman as my therapist for for many years, and I've had a Caucasian woman as my therapist for many years. And both of them have been very successful in helping me through um, what I needed help with during those two different times. So I will say that, again, it's whatever works for you. Now, when it comes to African-American men, again, it's going to be what works for the African-American man. Mm -hmm. If he um, does not see any of his uh, African-American male friends, colleagues, and family members um, ever going to get treatment, ever. And even if they do go get treatment, they never speak up about the fact that, you know, hey, man, when I went through that divorce or when I went through that bankruptcy, I needed to talk to somebody. You know, mm-hmm. if, if if we continue to carry around the facade that we're always strong and we never need anything or anybody, then, you know, that continues to perpetuate that idea that I must be weak. If I'm the only one that needs to see a therapist, I must Mm -hmm. be weak. And no man, whether black, white, Asian, or or any other race, no man and or woman wants to be seen as weak. But particularly the African-American man does not want to be seen as weak. So Mm -hmm. I encourage those African-American men that are out there that have gone through therapy, that are not afraid or ashamed to speak up and say, hey, I had had counseling. I had to go through counseling Mm -hmm. when when I went through that. When I went through that, uh, you know, layoff at the job, I, I had to go talk to somebody. You know, when I had that medical condition that, you know, I needed to talk to somebody. So when they speak up and they say, hey, this is who I went to see, and he helped me, or I went mm-hmm. to see this young lady or this, this therapist, and she helped me, whether or mm-hmm. not, again, I am all for whatever works for you. But the biggest thing is in, in my advocacy is to be aware and to know that you are not alone and that there is help there for you. And you know what? I like the way you put that because a lot of times somebody have to set the set the stage, set the example. And you know, I wanted to do some workshops in regards to men empowering men because a lot of men is so taboo to they think they got this. But the topics, the issues that you bring it up, like my divorce, the fact that I got laid off from work, you know, or I'm dealing with this relationship issue or this breakup, and individuals don't realize that is when you really need to go talk to somebody. And therefore, and what people have done in the past. 
is self-medicated or, you know, dealt with, a, mm-hmm. got into a certain other types of addiction or jumped into another relationship because they thought they were okay. And a lot of times, too, they don't want to seem, it's not only weak, but vulnerable. That's a whole other issue. And if you can, yeah. you know, like tap on that ego but not break that ego down or break that person down and do it in a way to where, like I said, you get them to think, you get them to move, you get them to grow, it can go a long way. Now, I want to go back yeah. to some of the things in regards to the factors that affect the mental health. Now, these, like I said, we, we kind of dibble-dabble on the racism, but another thing that affects the mental health for African Americans is the religious belief. Because some African Americans even see mental health as punishment from God, and up to 80% of African Americans describe themselves as fairly religious or religious. But now, some individuals are looking for Christian-based counseling or faith-based counseling, and even in ministry, you know, they're trying to do a lot of different workshops and conferences to educate individuals. But that was a barrier. Poverty was another one, because while mental health health is not by any means restricted to individuals of lower economic status, the stresses that can accompany in regards to poverty, hungry, hunger, um, homelessness, and lack of other basic needs are the inability to find jobs, that can also be a barrier. Violence is another one, and lack of providers' cultural competency. And you know, Dr. Sheila, the competency part is huge. Which one you want to start with? Because those are some of the things affected. (laughs) Yes, and I will definitely start with with uh, with the poverty one. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm going to take it back to, to my experiences. And um, we were, um, you know, we weren't homeless, um, obviously, but we were not, you know, we weren't rich. So um, my father had a sixth grade education. My mother was not able to work, obviously, because of her undiagnosed and misdiagnosed mental illness. So she never worked. Um, so my father took care of, you know, a five-family household, um, on a sixth-grade education salary doing construction and odd-end jobs, and as a mechanic, God rest his soul, he was an amazing man. So I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that God will place you exactly where you need to be and give you exactly mm-hmm. what you need in your life. So back to my point, I could, I could talk about daddy all day long, but when it, when it came to our mother and health insurance, we did not have it um, early on. We didn't have it early on. So even though going back and forth to the doctor, um, some of those doctors, now that I look back, I would say that we were probably rushed out because, number one, we didn't have health insurance. So, you know, think about it, which doctors actually will accept you when you don't have medical insurance. And mm-hmm. then not having medical insurance, okay, how many tests are we going to perform on you because you can't, you can't afford, you know, certain tests and certain treatment. So, you know, there, there was a little bit of subpar treatment there many a times, many years, because, number one, we could not afford it. Um, And so I want to agree with that point that at times, again, if you don't have medical insurance, you can't flip that card over to the back and dial the 800 number that offers you uh, mental health facilities and and therapists in your your area because there is no 800 number to call because you don't have a health insurance. You know, you don't have health insurance. You see what I'm saying? So when you don't have these things available to you, I, I, I totally agree from, again, from a personal and professional standpoint, the experience that I've seen that is definitely true. And we know that when it comes to our overall health. You know, if you don't, you know, you don't have the health insurance, it, I mean, the same is true for, for you know, any other um, symptom or ailment that we have. We, we don't have access to certain things because we don't have health care. So, mm-hmm. again, we, we definitely, um, you know, at or, you know, at that poverty level, things are just not available to you. But I will say, I wouldn't say all things are not available. Some things are still available to you on a pro bono basis because the community um, often provides um, services to those individuals who, you know, don't have, um, you know, the means to pay for it out of pocket or the health insurance to cover it. Your community often has uh, resources available, you know, for pro bono, for free. So we don't want to eliminate the fact that there is absolutely nothing available. I, I have an amazing organization that I, I partner with, and um, it's called NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental yes. Illness here mm-hmm. in the greater Houston area. NAMI offers all kinds of free resources and services available, um, and they're for free. 
so we can't automatically say because you don't have have money or you don't have insurance that, oh, you know, what was me and there's nothing available. That's not true. We just have to do a little bit of digging and a little bit more research to find those organizations because right. they are available. And, and not only the organizations, a lot of individuals that have Medi-Cal, Medi-Cal covers a lot of different things when we're talking about therapy. If individuals are victims of crimes, mm-hmm. they can also get their, their mental health needs met that way. So, you know, mm-hmm. if they have a job, depending on the job, some employers offer EAP, which is Employee Assistance Program. They also offer referrals with a to a contracted therapist or, you know, a psychologist, someone within their network to help individuals get their needs met. People are doing a lot of different things to address this topic and subject, so we just got to utilize our resources. And call 211. You know, if you don't even have a card, you can call 211, which is InfoLink, and they can provide you with services in your area. So we don't want to say that we don't have the money, and a lot of times individuals don't want to pay the copay, but there are other ways of getting things done. And, and no matter what it is, whether you're dealing with a mental health issue, if it's an addiction, if it's a relational issue, there is help out there. Now, in regards yeah. to the religious beliefs, a lot of times individuals want to pray about it. Uh, you know, when we talk about schizophrenia, we look at schizophrenia as being something that's spiritual. And a lot of times individuals, we talk about misdiagnosed, un- diagnosed, a lot of times part of that with the mental health and people of color is because we were depending, and I'm not saying I love God, I trust God, I am a believer, I actually do a show on Tuesdays from the pulpit to the couch, but sometimes with people of color, our religious beliefs can get us in trouble when we start talking about mental health, because like you said, we got to learn how to get some help. What would you want to add to that in regards, Dr. Sheila, with religious beliefs? Well, I, you know, I grew up in the church. You know, we we were a very spiritual, very religious family, um, and I I consider myself, I still am. But at mm-hmm. the same time, we know that God has placed uh, professionals. He's placed uh, medicine here for us, um, and I firmly believe that while we're praying, and while we are we're giving it to God and we're asking Him to heal us in every every manner. And every, you know, from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, and that means also mentally, mm-hmm. psychologically, emotionally, and physically, I also believe that he intends for us to seek help uh, just as we go to the doctor for a headache or diabetes or a high blood pressure. Why would we not seek, um, you know, help for our mental health just as we do our physical health? So I think there's a lot of miseducation when it comes to uh, mental health because we don't see that mental health is an actual part of our overall health. When we change the way that we think about mental health as a separate entity and we realize that our mental health is a part of our overall health, I think that people will start to realize that, okay, mental health is a part of overall health. So just as if I have a broken bone or a headache, diabetes, cancer, or high blood pressure, any other ailment, I will see a professional about that. So when it comes to mental health, it should be just the same. So when you have emotional things that are going on, you have things in your life that you can't deal with or you're having a difficult time, you know, getting past certain trauma, that is why a mental health is, you know, a professional. That's why they're here, to help you through those processes, through those situations that you can't cope with or you can't deal with on your own. So I'm going to repeat um, what I, I said earlier. I'm going to repeat what yes, I said earlier where I indicated it includes our emotional psychological, social well-being, it affects how we think, how we feel, and how we act. So that is very, very important. Okay, we have another caller on the line. Let me log this person on. Okay. Good afternoon. This is Jeanette Abney. Welcome to Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio, number ended in 05. What would you like to add, or do you have any questions for the doctor or myself? Okay, number ended in zero five. You're on the air with us. Okay, I guess they don't want to say anything. Now, Dr. <laughs> Sheila, we kind of touched on a little bit when I've indicated the violence. Now, when it talks about violence and we talk about mental health, African Americans of all ages are more likely to witness or be victims of serious violent crimes. Exposure to violence increases the risk of developing mental health conditions, such as post-traumatic stress, 
stress disorder, depression, and anxiety. And African-American children are more likely than other children to be exposed to violence, which can have a profound long-term on their mental health. Now, I grew up in Compton, California. I saw a lot, saw a lot of my family, saw a lot of my neighborhood, saw a lot of my community. I didn't realize the trauma that I had been exposed to until I did the ACE exam, and that was just a couple of years ago. I scored 8 out of 10. I was like, oh, my God, because I normalized it. I thought it was okay, but I didn't realize the impact that those things have on mental health. So now, as a professional, I'm very aware, especially when I'm in the school systems, in regards to the impact of what some of these kids are seeing, especially when we start talking about violence and even witnessing domestic violence in their home. Now, let me walk on. There's another caller calling in, and then I want you to speak on that a little bit. Hi, this is Jeanette. Welcome to Purchase Predicaments. Number ended in 5-5. How are you doing? Okay, they hung up. I guess they wanted to listen. If you want to listen, you could just click on the link to listen. But if you call in the number, and the number, if you call in, which is 516-387-1914, you will be on the switchboard as if you have any questions or if you want to join in on a conversation. But you can click on the link to listen at any time. So, Dr. Sheila, what do you think about violence as it relates to mental health? The person is calling back again. Give me one second. Okay. Hi, this is Jeanette. Do you have any questions for Dr. Sheila or myself? Number ending in five five. Yeah, Jeanette. Uh, I, you know, I'm just. I just want to listen. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just. Okay, no problem. To listen. Okay. No problem. Okay, Dr. Sheila. What about the violence? Because a lot of times we minimize that. We don't think it's a big deal or, you know, kids that have experienced or witnessed or let's talk about that a little bit. We talk about mental health, especially for uh, people of color. Well, definitely. Um, you know, we are a lot of times just as we don't like to talk about or admit that mental illness um, is, you know, present in our family or in ourselves, we don't like to admit that, you know, there's domestic violence in our home. So um, as we talked about the bully, there are two different, um, in my opinion, there are two different victims. You have the individual who's inflicting the physical harm because there has to be something. There's some trauma. There is some abuse. There is some mental illness. There is some, you know, maybe drug or alcohol abuse. There is something going on as to why an individual would want to cause harm to another individual. That's not something that's just quote-unquote normal. So there's something going on there as to why that individual feels the need to in- inflict harm emotionally, physically, psych- you know, psychological, verbal abuse. Um, and then there's the individual who is being harmed, obviously, is uh, experiencing trauma. So mm-hmm. if we don't admit that there is an issue going on, then that, that, that problem continues to perpetuate itself from generation to generation. As I know you have heard, uh, hurt people turn around hurt. and they hurt people. Mm-hmm. So until we get that individual who has been hurt help, that is going to continue to perpetuate and it will continue to perpetuate from generation to generation to generation. So then not only do you have a family of hurt people, you then have a community of hurt people, and then you have an entire race of hurt people. So it starts with ourselves. But we also have to remember and admit that obviously we don't work we don't work and and live in silo we we are um engaging with other people we are living with our our relatives and our loved ones we're working with coworkers we're going to church and communing with uh you know our loved ones our family members our friends so when you when you're having these interactions and you are taking the hurt that you've experienced and you're you know displacing that on other people you continue to hurt because you're not getting help, and then the hurt that you're displacing on the next person, now you've caused this person unnecessary trauma, and that trauma mm-hmm. just doesn't go away. So, again, I feel that it all boils down to our mental health, and until we address that, we will continue to have a community of hurt people, and it will continue from generation to generation. So we have to continue to have these conversations we have to continue to let people know that there are mental health services available available to them in their community, whether or not they have insurance, whether or not they have money or not. There are services available 
to you. For those that have had treatment, you know, you don't have to be, uh, you know, nationally or internationally um, open about your personal life as I am, but if you have a loved one, family members or friends, speak up to them. Speak up to, to, you know, members in your church to say, hey, you know, I went through a very personal thing and I got help. You know, until we, uh, you know, paint the picture and let people know that it's okay to not be okay, then people will continue to pretend that they're okay when they're not. So that's, um, that's my take on when it comes to physical abuse. Um, I feel that it to uh, there is a mental health condition uh, right there, um, you know, with the individual that's causing the mental health abuse as well as it being perpetuated on the person that's going through the trauma. And, you know, and I know we're running out of time, and I want to, I like the questions, I like the dialogue and the way things are going, and I hope that individuals are out there listening, and if you are, if you like what you're hearing, please share this information, because one of the things that we're finding is that when we talk about people of color, individuals, we have the issues with trust. A lot of times we we don't have any hope. We don't believe in the system. We, you know, we come up with all these different negative things. I know my mother with her suffering her depression, everything was always just so negative, you know. She didn't trust nobody. She didn't want to pay for things. Even though she had the money, she still didn't want to do anything about it. But things can change. Now, I spoke a little bit about the cultural competency, and if you are in the field, you also have to make sure that you are sensitive and you educate yourself as it relates to the needs of other people. And one of the things that I do as a therapist is I listen to the person. I help have them teach me about them because you have to be able to connect with someone before you can correct anything. A lot of times individuals feel judged. They feel people don't understand. They feel people don't listen to them, and they don't want to open up. So they will close up, and I always tell individuals, I have a very strong discernment, so it's not what you say that I'm going to pick up on. I'm going to pick up on what you don't say, but I have thick skin, and I'm willing to address it. A lot of times people don't want you to know, or they'll ask you, how do you know, or who told you that? And people don't have to tell you. It's like they can come in sometimes with a big old bullseye on their head because you know they've been hurt. So we have to be very careful with when we're dealing with people because sometimes we can cause more harm if we're not careful. So cultural competency mm-hmm. is very important. And even when we talk about people of color, sometimes you can have a person you think is African American, they could come they could be you know, be coming from Brazil or, you know, sometimes ask questions. Let listen. Right. What do you have to say in regards to that? Because sometimes we jump to conclusions, especially professionals. We think we know everything. Yeah. We think we know everything, you know, to kind of sit back and, you know, and it's just important to listen because, as you stated, people will tell you uh, certain things and and be be mindful of body language and Mm -hmm. the nonverbal, as you stated. So um, I've I've witnessed where people are very quick to give advice, but they're not listening um, completely to the individual and being mindful of what the individual is maybe asking and or saying or maybe not even saying. So mm-hmm. as professionals for non-professionals, it's important for us to just be a listening ear. And I find that once people feel comfortable and that you're non-judgmental, they will be more willing to open up and to disclose certain things. And it was, I mean, it was very apparent with my mother as well because she never, I mean, she's an absolutely beautiful woman. I, of course, I'm biased because that was my mom, but I felt mm-hmm. like she was an absolutely beautiful woman. And so many people that said that she was so beautiful, but she never felt that. She never felt that she fit mm-hmm. in. Um, she never felt that she was good enough. And um, obviously the, the clinical depression, you know, played a heavy, played a heavy part on that, or, you know, a big role in that. But um, outside of that, you know, having that mental illness, even after it was diagnosed, we never talked about it. And she never felt comfortable, never felt that she fit in. It was such a huge stigma that, you know, many times she didn't even want to come out of the home. She never participated in activities. She never felt that she fit in. But once she felt that she, you know, she had a non-judgmental ear in me, and I would just listen. And, you know, this how, that's how I ended up in this field, listening and paying attention. I, I actually, you know, completed my degree in psychology, you know, my bachelor's degree, before I even knew that my mother had a mental illness. So it wasn't that she had a mental illness and then I went into the field. I completed a degree in psychology simply because I, I read my first psychology book and I was like, wait a minute, a lot of these mm-hmm. symptoms sound very 
similar to what's going on with my mom, you know. So, uh, you know, just pay attention to your loved ones. Pay attention to yourself. And um, you you asked about the book early, and we were just talking. I forgot to, you know, give you the information about the book. Um, you, you know, again, the the title of the book is My Mother's Keeper, and I want everyone who's listening to please go out and purchase the book. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or you can go directly to my website, drsheiladwilliams.com, and purchase the book, um, you know, through the website directly. And if you're in the Houston area, I have a book signing coming up this Saturday on the 15th at the Barnes & Noble uh, here on Memorial Drive at 2 p.m. So come out and join me at the um, at the book signing on, on Saturday. I would love to be able to meet you and, uh, you know, sign a copy, a personalized copy of My Mother's Keeper. And, and, oh, that and, and, is, that is awesome. And what were you going to say? Dr. Williams, are you, are you, are you available uh, to go to California, New York, uh, Florida, uh, to do book signing <laughs> as well as uh, doing speaking? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm definitely available um, to travel uh, anywhere, nationally or internationally, um, you know, um, to speak and to, you know, be in continuous advocacy for mental health awareness because, you know, it, like I said, it's personal and it's very personal to me, obviously, but I know that this is my life's purpose um, because I know that God doesn't make any mistakes. So definitely I'm available for speaking engagements, to be a panelist, um, to come to your church and to speak about it as well, um, to, you know, just share the information and, you know, make people aware of those signs and those symptoms and just let them know that they're not alone. But, yes, I'm aware. Thank you for that question. You know, and I will definitely be getting in touch with you because there are some things and workshops and panels that I'm going to be putting together. Because I know on February the 23rd, I will also be speaking in Marietta, California, with Dr. Lisa Romaine, and we're going to be doing a workshop in regards to accessing mental health services. And so if anyone have any information, I will also be posting it on my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter because we do need more people out there in the field, in the trenches, and trying to get people to have a better understanding of what is going on. And like I said, in the other kind, it was Dr. Kahala Fakim, and he was one that put together that the mental health uh, first day 101, and they were bringing it into churches for in regards to um, individuals of leadership to help them gain a better understanding, too. So if individuals want more information, help is out there. And can you speak, mm-hmm. Dr. Sheila, in regards to the advocacy? Because I'm finding that a lot of parents are calling in regards to their children, their young adults, because some symptoms in regards to mental health or there's an age of onset. An individual don't understand what they call the DSM-5 and, you know, especially we talk about schizophrenia. I know that a lot of individuals that are in the age of their, their 30s, mid, young, uh, middle, mid-30s, have dealt or were diagnosed with schizophrenia. I don't know what was going on in 84, 85, but it was a lot going on. <laughs> and a lot of parents are showing their young adults with mm-hmm. mental illness and violence. So as an advocate, how can these parents meet out and connect with someone to get help? They, they definitely need to be concerned because I need for the listeners to know that suicide is the mm-hmm. second leading cause of death. For people between the ages of 10 and 34. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say it again. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 34. So you, mm-hmm. you, you want to keep you want to keep that in mind. So our young people are committing suicide, and, and it started with the age of 10. So that means that there are children even younger than the age of 10 who are committing suicide. So mm-hmm. we, we, need to, we need to be aware of this. But I, I would definitely say, like I said it before, I'm, I'm partnering with NAMI. I do some trainings and workshops through NAMI. Um, if you want to go to NAMI.org, N-A-M-I.org, um, there is a wealth of information there. NAMI is a national organization, a national alliance on mental illness. So there's information on it, regardless of where you're located. There's information um, there for you, um, regardless of what city or state you're located in. And then, of course, um, I would say um, I always like to give out the suicide prevention um, mm-hmm. Hotline number, um, you know, so that's the 1-800 number. It's 1-800-273-8255. Again, the suicide prevention number is 1-800-273-8255. And if you want information about, um, you know, just resources available in the community or just generalized information, go to NAMI.org, N-A-M-I.org. And, of course, 
my website if you're looking for a speaker or someone to come out and talk about uh, mental health, you know, um, in the importance thereof. For more information about me and my book, you can go to my website, drsheilabwilliams.com. I think both of y'all should get together and uh, do something on the COVID, <laughs> on the COVID, because there's a Kobe has had a uh, direct impact on mental health uh, for yes, black men, yes. especially because I see a whole, whole lot of black men that are crying and and revealing yes. things just based directly off of COVID. And you in California, I'd love to see you and Doc get together and do something in California around the COVID mental health and how that's impacting our community. Yes, it is, with depression, with grief, with bereavement, all of that, anxiety, Mm -hmm. and them even talking about their own deaths. That is so true. Mm -hmm. That may be a good idea, Dr. Sheila. I've got to see what your schedule looks like because I'm pretty open because I am in California. Well, I want to thank you for joining us here at Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio. And the listener that called in, I love your input that you put that you put out there. I'm trying to write your number down so I can know if I can follow up with you too. So again, thank you for joining us, Precious Predicaments mm-hmm. Blog Talk Radio. And until next week, remember you got this. And Dr. Sheila, keep me in prayer. I got to get this colonoscopy done. I don't want to. <laughs> got to get it done. Got to get it done. So until then, thank. You listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.